Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host. And today's episode is a very interesting episode. I am here with a psychologist from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Hosey, who I'm extremely excited and very honoured to have on. When I was thinking about covering a psychological topic on the podcast, uh, there was only one real possibility of guests I could get on to talk about it and cover it in appropriate detail and with appropriate expertise and Dr. Hosey was was the, the only person that I felt I would be able to have a long discussion with on aspects of psychological recovery and issues in ICU and do it in an entertaining way and I'm really thankful that she came on to the podcast and I hope that you enjoy it. I would like to say before the podcast starts properly that all the topics discussed in the podcast are purely for educational purposes. If you have any issues talked about or addressed in the podcast, please speak to either your mental health professional or your primary care physician to find out what might be most suitable for you. Yet again, thank you for listening and I hope that you enjoy this episode with Dr. Hosey. Thank you. So I'm here today with a, a very exciting guest uh, from, from America. Uh, Megan, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, I'm Megan Hosey. I'm a rehabilitation psychologist in Baltimore, Maryland. I work at Johns Hopkins Hospital conducting research on helping patients to manage anxiety in the ICU and beyond. And so I'm very happy to be talking to an amazing ICU survivor today. Thank you. And what are we going to be talking about today? I think today we were hoping to talk a little bit about how patients can manage anxiety in the intensive care unit with non-pharmacological methods and how those might even help patients later down the line once they've learned them in ICU. I suspect that a lot of people that are listening will know what anxiety is, but can you tell us what anxiety is medically so that everyone kind of knows what we're talking about? Anxiety disorders are sort of a, there are a variety of them in the DSM-5. I won't go into great detail about all of them, but what we tend to see in the intensive care unit the most is what we would call generalized anxiety. So this looks like fear of physiological sensations. So people often experience breathlessness, pain. They might have disturbances in sleep and wake cycles. And often people are delirious. So all of these can cause what looks like a feedback loop. In fact, worsening physical symptoms. So if you have breathlessness and you're afraid that you're breathless, that creates a loop where you get more breathless. So the main goal is to sort of figure out how to break up this cycle where you have a physical symptom, it causes fear, and then worse physical symptoms. Yeah, I spoke not on the podcast, but in blogs and talking it conferences and things I had quite bad panic attacks post ICU so I'm quite familiar with the the sort of loop and that panic attack comes on makes you feel like you can't breathe because you can't breathe you feel anxious which then makes the, the panic attack worse which then makes you less able to breathe and you know it is quite a an alarming downward spiral that 
when you're healthy and aware is not easy to break. When I had panic attacks, things like music were quite beneficial. So what in the ICU setting have you found helpful or useful in stopping or assisting in treating anxiety? I don't like treating. That's not really a to manage anxiety, perhaps. So I'll start where you started which is music. So there's this amazing nurse here in the States, she's in Minnesota, named Linda Klein. And she's done several studies. In fact, there's one that's in the Journal of the American Medical Association um, that suggests that music is a non-pharmacological, we call it an intervention, but, but music is music, that really showed a couple of things. We can reduce patient's subjective ratings of anxiety. So that's them telling us, okay, I feel more calm, I feel better. And it also reduced the amount of medications that they perceived that they needed to manage the anxiety. The two core things that we know about music in the ICU is that the patient should be able to pick what they're listening to and for how long. So they chose, you know, a playlist and the duration, and that was sort of some of the core component as well. Because as you know, Mark, giving people back some of their control when they're in the intensive care unit is really a huge step. When you wake up in the ICU, most people are not able to do anything for themselves. And by anything, I mean they can't breathe, they can't go to the bathroom, they can't stand and walk. And so giving people reminders that there are things there are things that they can start to take back ownership over, especially in a way that resonates with them, that will help them on their recovery trajectory. So music is one evidence-based intervention. And so I'll take a step back a little bit too. So when I first get to meet patients, one of the first things I make sure is that the person that I'm talking to doesn't have ICU delirium, which I know is probably something you touched on quite a bit here on your podcast, because the way that we manage anxiety in the context of delirium is much different than the way we would help somebody manage anxiety when they're not delirious. Would it help to maybe define delirium one more time? Or have you guys talked about that enough on the podcast? It's a component of ICU life that is very important. So if you want to give your definition of it, then it's always good. Okay, good. So ICU delirium, the way we typically think about it is a disturbance in attention and that comes on suddenly and might come and go over time. There are a couple of standardized measures in the hospital I work in, the nurses administer a measure called the CAM-ICU with regularity so that we can make sure that we're aware that it's happening to patients and stay on top of it. So that's sort of the clinical definition. When we talk to patients about what they're experiencing, they often tell us it looks like difficulties telling what's a dream and what's real, having absence of memory for periods of time, potentially having hallucinations and delusions that look and sound like nurses and doctors trying to harm them. Everything from I spoke to a dead loved one to I had really, I was certain for a period of time that my loved ones were being harmed. And most scary is that they sometimes tell us that they are being persecuted, tortured, and they have different perceptions of reality than we do. 
And for people who are delirious, the way that we manage anxiety is not to try to talk to them necessarily. We do do reorientation. So we say things like, you're here in the hospital. We're here to help you. This is why you're here. Remind them that their loved ones are safe. Remind them of the day and the time. So, so giving them all of the cues to help their brain sort of get back on track with what's really happening. But we don't spend time trying to explain. Well, in fact, you're not camping. You're in the hospital. So, so trying to reason with a delirious person really can be very frustrating for them. And it also makes them more tired. So we use all these cues in the environment to try to help bring them back. So that's the main distinction is for people who are anxious and delirious, it's the environment that needs to change, not the person. Does that make sense so far? Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty clear that if someone is delirious, which is presenting with anxiety or causing anxiety, that the problem first is not the anxiety, because that is right. not the that is not the life-threatening aspect of the problem. First, you deal with the immediate ICU delirium. That must resolve first before you can start doing anything else, because while the delirium is there, it's still a, a serious medical issue and it's usually addressed as a medical emergency. And, and as such, it takes priority over everything else other than the underlying causes of, of the delirium, whether that be infection or pain or any of the kind of other reasons. Those need to be resolved first because you, you can't try to fix a mental health issue while the larger mental health picture is fluctuating you can't it would be like trying to put a picture up level on a boat on the high seas it's not happening you first need to level the boat before you can do anything else that is such a brilliant analogy i love that exactly you've hit the nail right on the head I, i work in analogies because it's it's how people picture things i think that that was a beautiful one i love that Once we've established that the patient isn't delirious and that there's not something for us to try to mitigate to resolve the underlying cause, the next step in my conceptualization is to talk to the patient and their family about what life was like before they came to hospital. Getting a sense of important things like what was your day-to-day like, what things were giving you purpose and meaning, who are the important people in your life. And then we might drill down a little bit further into whether or not the person had mental health complications prior to coming to the hospital, because that gives us a little bit of of wiggle room on a couple of things. One is if somebody had anxiety or depression before, that does give us a signal that we're in a triggering event if you're in the intensive care unit, potentially. So that gives us a window about vulnerability. But the great thing about that, too, is often if people have been anxious or depressed or had other types of mental health challenges before, they might have some keys to unlocking the coping that they'll do in the hospital. Often patients are the experts on how they'll cope with their anxiety because they've done it before. We just have to figure out how to adapt for this new setting. That's where I start is to try to get to know the person sitting in front of me. The next things that we do are start with some evidence-based practices. Traditionally, I work in two types of psychotherapy. One is cognitive and behavioral therapy. That's got 
you know, about 30 years of evidence behind it in helping patients manage symptoms of anxiety and depression. We don't have great data for hospitalized patients, so we're working on that. And then the other psychotherapy I often touch on is one called ACT. That is acceptance and commitment therapy, which I won't get into the boringness of it, but essentially acceptance and commitment therapy gives patients a framework for um, adjusting expectations in life. Because one of the things we know is after being diagnosed with and living through a life-threatening medical condition, it can just sort of shift your sense of self a bit. And there's ways that that's great and okay. And there's ways that that will continue to be an ongoing challenge. And so acceptance and commitment therapy gives you ways of sort of playing with that dynamic. Does that make sense or am I just- Yeah, certainly. After having been in ICU, you're sort of, everything has changed. So quite often you're left with physical issues. Quite often you're left with mental health issues. You might be left with financial burdens, social effects, and all of these things require you to adapt. And it's usually quite a large change because it's not, it's not just one thing. You've not just had your sort of mental health damaged. You've had your mental health damage, you've had your physical health damage, you've probably had relationships affected, you've had perhaps loss of earning from from work, you're perhaps particularly in places that don't have universal health care, you're going to then be burdened with the cost of the admission, you're going to have a plethora of things and your support system is going to be stretched as well because your family and your friends have also experienced a version of the ICU story so those people that you would be leaning on to support you whether it be mental health whether it be physically they have been affected physically from stress and from other aspects and mental health wise from seeing someone that they care about being in a place where there's a fair chance they might not make it out and if they make it out they're going to be greatly different so these things it's not just that the patient's been affected, it's that the support system that would have propped them up otherwise has cracks in it now. So there needs to be a kind of understanding that things are going to be different, that there is going to be a, it might be a minor change if you're if you're very fortunate, but it may be a massive change in not just you, but your environment. And that's not easy to come to terms with and it's not easy to cope with. So I always believe that Every ICU team should have a psychologist involved because mental health is a massive aspect of the ICU and post-ICU story and that it would be akin to not having physio or occupational therapy and generally that's accepted as as something that will always exist in it. You can't... (laughs) Fixing the body isn't the only problem. Getting people back walking and all of these things, being able to feed themselves, chop their food up, dress themselves and wash themselves, they're all key. But if as soon as you step outside, you feel like you're going to die, it's not really worth anything. Physical health has to come with quality of life, which is heavily impacted by your mental health, whether it be depression. PTSD or anxiety, the sort of triumvirate of post-ICU issues. So I think psychology needs to be involved at at the start, not brought in in the post-ICU stage as it is in quite a lot of things. I know 
the ICU ward that I was in, there is psychologist involved. I'm not aware of the ins and outs of it. I don't believe I saw them while I was an inpatient, but I think things have changed significantly since I've been in. But there definitely is psychology involvement in the overall picture, whether it be directly or advisorily, they're still there. And I think we need to get to the point where it's better to address the problems or at least identify that there is a problem day one. That means that when we get to day 100, when we're getting allowed out, at that point, we know there's a problem and that we can actually get to trying to solve that problem. So I was in, it was 16 weeks, so four months, three weeks in an ICU, then three weeks at level two high dependency, and then a bunch of weeks after, although that was because I caught swine flu while I was in hospital, so that set me back. But one of my major issues was I had depression in the hospital. I presented with that. It was very dark. It was very difficult to get support inside. The psychiatry team didn't want anything to do with it. I, I only got seen because the consultant who was managing my care is a very important consultant within the, the picture of the hospital and basically told them that they had to see me. And then it was post-hospital presented with PTSD and anxiety. It wasn't until post-ICU clinic, which was when most of these symptoms started showing, that I got referred for treatment. And then it was maybe seven or eight months before I got treatment. This shouldn't happen, particularly with like PTSD symptoms. It would have been very easy to go into downward spiral and not be here. And I think a lot of that can be addressed if it's identified in ICU you know, they're at risk at the very least and that that can be monitored or continued through. I think it's a key part of the puzzle. Uh, I did a nice, you know, several minute talk about, but that's basically, <laughs> that's basically my point. I just expanded it. Yeah. So I've kind of took us off track a little. Oh, not uh, at all, Mark. I think that that's exactly the point. So you can tell me if this context sounds helpful or not, but the way I kind of conceptualize this is that modern medicine is amazing, that we are keeping people who really would not have made it before with us alive. And so um, that sort of came about in this Cartesian, meaning like mind and body are separate model, right? So that's where we've been for the past over a century of medicine, where we're really looking at cells, we're looking at organ systems, we're looking at treatments that are life-saving and prevent death. Important. We can't help you with your well-being, your purpose, your sense of self if you're dead. So I think that that's amazing and we've done a great job with that. And now the next part of the evolution, as you're saying, of medicine is to say we've kept people alive and now how do we simultaneously make sure people have a life that's worth living? And because we're at this weird point in history, we don't necessarily have systems in place for it yet. What's been amazingly gratifying for me personally is that the critical care community, at least maybe I'm embedded in a very special circle that's totally possible, but as soon as the critical care circle seemed to notice that there was a problem, meaning we had survivors who were living long enough to tell us, hey, that time that you thought I was peacefully sleeping in bed, 
I was actually wildly delirious. And by the time I got home, I'd had so much bed rest that I couldn't get out of bed. I think that people very early, once we had enough survivors telling us that story, said, we got to do something different. So the early rehab movement started. And as you say, we do have now embedded PTs, OTs, SLPs. And I think just the last component, hopefully, will get put into place is the mental health piece. Some barriers, and these might be United States specific, so or America specific, so you can tell me that a lot of people are thinking, well, the anxiety or depression or PTSD you experience in the hospital is different than when you go home. And that's true to a degree, but really once you know how to manage symptoms and the earlier you know how to manage symptoms, the better. Because it's not like, well, the anxiety you experience at the mall is different than the anxiety you experience at school. We don't have those differentiations in the real world, so we probably shouldn't be making them in ICU versus home necessarily, right? The next thing is a lot of people think, well, if you were sick with acute respiratory failure, that's different than if you were sick with a cardiac problem. And that also we find that it doesn't matter what ICU you come to us from, the rates of anxiety, depression, and PTSD are going to be the exact same. And it doesn't matter if you are on a vent or not. Believe it or not, anxiety, depression, and PTSD levels are going to be the exact same. Here in the States, the literature is bizarre. Like we have a lot of this research on people with acute respiratory distress syndrome who are on mechanical ventilation. But in fact, it's not a risk factor for these mental health outcomes. The only reason that we have that type of data is because of our research funding, which essentially funds organ systems, right? National Heart, Lung, and Blood Organization is what, if by identifying a specific population, that's how we get funded. So that's why it looks so strange. So those are some of the barriers that we have to getting regular mental health access to people. And that's what we're trying to collect data about so that we can show that in fact, the earlier we're treating people, the better. And it's not necessarily by organ system that we wanna help people, it's severity of mental health symptoms. And, and what you describe as depression in, in the hospital, Mark, is not an uncommon thing for people to experience. Another term that we use is hospital demoralization. You take any human being, lay them up in bed, don't give them a lot of opportunity to do stuff. Your brain starts to tell you things like, you are worthless. You, what's the point? You should feel guilty because you need all this help to keep going. And so it's not an uncommon thing for people to experience depression in the context of hospitalization. I would say that mine's is slightly different from that sort of model. And that four or five years ago when I was admitted to ICU, I had already had six abdominal surgeries where I'd had to rehabilitate from. So I was very used to not having like the physical abilities and things. And in fact, my depression in hospital hit while I was back on the ward. So while I was in my recovery phase, I was moving about. I was mobile. My, my sort of restrictions health-wise were relatively mild. It was the fact that I started to deteriorate again that hit me. I hadn't been able to rebuild my mental health armor at that point. So I was I was hit again while I was still in the process of kind of getting back to my feet. And that was what 
that swine so, flu setback. Yeah, so we didn't we didn't know it was swine flu at the start. It just seemed to be deteriorating, and it it wasn't caught necessarily as quickly as it should have been. And it wasn't until maybe four or five days of not particularly progressing. So I'd been kind of you know going at quite a steep upslope in recovery, and then sort of plateaued and maybe even started to decline. And it wasn't until maybe three or four days in when my parents, who were much more able to see stall in my recovery, said that something wasn't right. And then it was looked at. But by that time, I'd been hit. My mental health had been hit. And so I was I was starting to slide back down. That was making it very difficult. And obviously, when I was diagnosed with swine flu, when you have swine flu in the hospital, you get isolated. So I went from sort of normal visiting and nurses being in and out, nursing assistants and other things being in and out to seeing a member of staff maybe twice a day, which that isolation top of the sort of slide down is a negative impact. And obviously that is a very specific thing to me that won't be a, a kind of common occurrence in terms of it. But would have been hospital are really common for patients so i think that's an important story is that recovery often looks like two steps forward and one step back for one reason or another and it can be very demoralizing to think i'm on the trajectory to recovery and then get walloped with something new hard it's very very hard i think it was less less one thing and that both things happened at the same time obviously I think I probably would have been able to cope with the setback of an infection or needing to be isolated, but it was the the pair together that was a, a sort of massive shock. If I had been healthy and caught swine flu, I, my mental health would have been able to cope with it. But my mental health was ropey at this point. I was, I was in a state of trying to recover and... As I said, it's a case of I was trying to stand up and I got hit again and it knocked me back down. So that was that was everything I had to kind of add to it. So I think that's it. There's a lot of factors that go into mental health challenges in the wake of a medical condition and that perhaps we're like we're getting more research, but perhaps having more mental health support that starts earlier and somehow prevents gaps in the transition to home could be a nice evolution in medicine and we're, we're hoping that maybe we can see more of that because it's spotty the availability of that is very spotty here in the states you had mentioned that there had been psychological research involved in patients with ARDS. Mm-hmm. Yep. So like obviously I had ARDS, yeah. I, had, I had flu, what they suspect was avian flu brought on sepsis that then progressed to ARDS. So obviously I'm quite quite familiar with ARDS. Do you think that the, so this is a, a chain of thought that's came from uh, my, my conversation with Miguel in the the last episode, do you think that you can transpose the learning from these ARDS specific ones? You can just essentially apply them into other basis of critical care because it's not the underlying condition that brings on the after effects. So it's not the ARDS that causes anxiety. It's the critical care experience that is the sort of root of the problem. It's not the condition, it's the treatments. I do think that 
aspects of the treatment can be generalized. So cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are frameworks. And the nice thing that is that in each of these treatments, even though we might have protocols, the one that I work in is a six-session protocol where I meet the patient in the intensive care unit, follow them for six sessions, and each session title or theme is the same. But for every patient, it's going to be a little different, right? So some of the core components of this are education about physiological symptoms and how they may later affect behavior. So breathlessness is something that can often get in the way of physical activities. If my first thought when I start to exert myself is I'm becoming breathless, I'm going to die, you can imagine that people might avoid activity. And so we work together on how do we modify the emotions and the thoughts around that with a bit of exposure. And the same thing can be applied for pain, believe it or not. We make these distinctions between acute pain. So if I have a broken leg and I have pain, that's a little different than if my leg is healed and stable and I have more chronic pain. You can move around when you have that chronic pain. It's not going to cause harm. The pain is really more related to other things than it was in the acute phases of a break. The same thing is true for breathlessness. Once you have cardiopulmonary stability, and your critical care docs can know what that looks like, and so do your PTs, your physios, that's when we really think about getting people up and moving, even though it can still be pretty counterintuitive and scary. So again, we're just sort of talking about the education about that loop. The breaking it up, as I mentioned, is how can I find and identify alternative thoughts. So rather than I'm going to die, can I help the patient identify a a different type of way of thinking about that? We often do problem solving. So in the ICU for me, problem solving looks a little different than it might when you get home. So problem solving in the ICU can often for patients look like, what questions do I have for my docs that I haven't gotten answered yet? And very often, some of the first questions are, what does my prognosis with this disorder look like? How do I stay safe if I'm doing PT and OT? What is my recovery trajectory going to look like? And so even though the docs don't have crystal balls, they can't give you exact answers for this. Sometimes just knowing that the team is thinking about this and that having some ideas is enough to help patients get spurred forward. Some of the additional components are things like relaxation training, which you might have some experience with, Mark. And that's really about, we have some very specific protocols for that. But the good news is if the first one isn't a good fit for you, we can always pull from our toolkit and work on another relaxation technique. So some of the common ones in the intensive care unit are guided imagery. We've done body scans for people. We do, for people who are farther along in their vent progression, we do some guided breathing and breathing exposure that can eventually feel very relaxing and calming, but that gets kind of special in the ICU as well. And then the final thing is about relapse prevention. So how do I take these skills that I've learned in the intensive care unit and then start to think about how I'll adapt them when I get home with some discussion about what are my concerns about going home and what's life going to look like differently. Those are the interventions that we often work on. 
for anxiety management when I get to work with people in the ICU and the ward. There's a couple of things there. One of the big things anxiety-wise you talked about once you're, you're out of ICU is will it happen again is the, is the big, even if there isn't a sort of, mine's was an infection, I have a weakened immune system, there is a distinct possibility that I will get another infection that will land me in ICU again. But for other people who have maybe been in for car crashes or a surgical complication, it's still there and that they're worried, particularly approaching things like anniversaries of admissions, the sort of anxiety comes back of, is it going to happen again? And I'm now nearly five years, so I'll be five years in December. And certainly the first two years after, the first year after I had really bad panic attacks, I was probably having panic attacks maybe six or seven times a day for the day either side of it and the day of. And obviously that was quite hard to cope with. How do you address that sort of because that's a there's no direct thing to kind of grasp on it's a sort of I don't want to say irrational anxiety because there is a a sort of rational behind it but it's not good thinking to think oh if it happens again particularly when the situation that put you in was a chain of events that are very unlikely to be repeating again. So recurrence of illness is a major concern and should be right like to be honest I, I love that you were sort of like trying to just differentiate between rational and irrational and for people with a medical condition I sort of take that distinction and put it aside because the truth of the matter is you could have a recurrence it's a total possibility the question this is where some of the acceptance and commitment therapy pieces come in the question becomes how helpful is it to carry that in the front of your mind and how much of the time, for example? What I love about you, Mark, is that you've now identified a bunch of things that give you purpose in life. You're sitting here with me doing a critical care podcast to help other patients and providers take better care of people. That's one thing that you've now thrown your energy into. So no matter if you get sick again or not, you've got something going on in the world that brings you purpose and meaning. I'm sure that there are other things in your life that are important for you to be prioritizing as well. So the major point is in this moment, you're not sick and you're, well, you know, <laughs> it's always a matter of degrees, right? I'm healthy. You're healthy. In this moment, you are healthy. And so you're making the best of this moment by doing something that brings you meaning and purpose. And so that's what we would hope for a lot of people who are recovering and surviving after a medical condition is we can make life about clinging on and hoping we don't get sick every moment, or we could just make sure we shift the focus to what's bringing me meaning and purpose in this moment. So that's the framework that we might start to operate from. And then very specific, there are things for panic attacks. And I can tell you a little bit about what I work on with people for panic attacks, but maybe we could, like, what helps you with panic, Mark? There's a couple of things. I don't, I don't tend to get them so much now. I had EMDR treatment, okay. Okay. Um, which was coupled for the anxiety and the PTSD. Mm-hmm. And that resolved most of the issues. It resolved all of the sort of PTSD issues, which that was part of the downward cycle. So when I went back to college, 
I would have a panic attack when I entered, which would then cause PTSD flashbacks, which would then increase their anxiety. So in those sort of circumstances, initially I had no idea. I just kind of stood in the wallow of it and just because I knew from kind of what I'd read that removing yourself wasn't necessarily the answer. So I just sat in it until it passed. And then I found that if when I had it, I could get music on, that that seemed to resolve it quicker. So I've always found music seemed to be the kind of thing that worked for me. But, you know, things like podcasts or or listening to comedy helps with anxiety. So I would imagine it would have been a similar sort of impact. But music is so readily available. You know, you've got it on your phone, you've got it on your computer. You know, it's easy to access. So other things are more difficult. So it's an easy tool to, to kind of grasp. Well, that's beautiful. EMDR and other exposure therapies like prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy, CPT, are all evidence-based treatments for PTSD. So those are definitely things you want to partner with with a trained mental health specialist. Exposure is a really tricky thing. So often when people are doing prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, really when we say exposure, what we're talking about is asking the patient in one form or another to describe or retell the story of triggering symptoms, right? So that's really why we want to have a trained mental health specialist, because if we have somebody who's not sure exactly how that's going to work, And if we have a patient who doesn't have a stable environment, like if you don't have um, family members to support you or um, like a stable living environment, that's not necessarily the time to do an exposure therapy. But those are by far the most effective ones for treating PTSD symptoms. And for panic, like you're describing, Mark, I exactly what you're describing is what I usually work on with people in hospital the fancy term that we use for them is grounding techniques. So rather than trying to sort of fight for breath or or fight against the panic attack, what you might do is use your senses to bring attention to what's happening in the present moment. And so for you, listening to music or having a sound is fantastic. Um, For patients who are in the hospital, I might work with them on, you know, for example, the sense of touch. Can you feel the blanket resting on your legs? Can you feel your head resting against the pillow? Can we listen to the noise in the hallway? Can you tell me about things that you see here in the room and sort of pulling yourself back into the present moment or grounding yourself in your senses right now can often help people get through that panic attack. Panic attacks can go on for about 10 to 15 minutes and are just that sensation This is for your listeners who maybe haven't experienced them. They're that sensation that something really bad is happening. The world is coming to an end. People often say, I thought I was going crazy. It's just a really deep sense of doom that makes it hard for people to have a sensation of catching their breath. They might get hot or sweaty or feel like they might be having heart palpitations. So it's this constellation of physical symptoms paired with that really deep feeling of doom And it's not uncommon in hospital, especially for people who've had acute breathing problems, cardiac arrest, 
those are some of the more common types or, you know, like you're saying, if you've had a trauma incident, like a car crash where you can sort of remember what happened, often patients might tell us about panic in those instances as well. But what do you think about that, Mark? Does that kind of map onto the experience that you're telling me about? Yeah, I would, I would describe panic attacks as feeling like you're being attacked from somewhere you can't see and it's an adrenaline dump you're getting that load of adrenaline of your your kind of fight and flight process which is great when you're in genuine danger but when you're walking down a street is is not particularly useful and obviously the the effects of the panic attack come from this unknown feeling that you have and, and are exacerbated by the fact that you have so much adrenaline coursing through you that you could probably run a marathon in the kind of normal instances when you get adrenaline it's just help you support things and obviously i believe adrenaline draws the the blood away from your core and to your muscles so that you're prepared for for running and things like that so that has effects when you don't require it and i know that certainly when i get like adrenaline for dental aspects because I have bleeding issues so adrenaline is occasionally used because the dentists get a little frightened when they see so much blood so they use adrenaline to to stem the bleeding through tooth extractions and things like that and that gets me shaking like I'm like I'm on one of the vibrating plates which obviously <laughs> makes it fun to try and work in somebody's mouth when they're but yeah, that's essentially how I've experienced it is the, the kind of hand at the back of your consciousness threatening and then the, the massive sort of influx of, of adrenaline, which is wholeheartedly unhelpful at that point. But yeah, so that's my kind of experience of it, which sounds very similar to the sort of clinical thinking on, on it. Obviously, there's always two two views on it there's the kind of view from the inside and the view from the outside yes i wanted to go back to something you'd mentioned much earlier which was about mobilization yeah uh, obviously johns hopkins is sort of the the premier icu facility for for mobilization in icu dr needham advocates sort of as early movement as is as physically safe to I'm saying this, obviously, you you know this, but people listening won't necessarily know of, of Dale's great works, which everybody who works in ICU should. Obviously, the early movement, so even while patients are still on vent, getting them mobilized, which is, is shown to greatly help with things like delirium. Do you find that this early mobilization of people that are on vent or off vent or in whatever circumstances has a positive impact beyond the affecting delirium in terms of their mental health. So do you find people that aren't delirious improve in terms of anxiety and other issues? Let me make sure I just heard, I heard two questions. I think one is oh, I like think... I like to ask like three or four questions in a question. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure I caught them. It sounds like the first one was do I think that early mobilization impacts things like anxiety and depression. And then the second one was, do I think that the having delirium resolved faster helps with anxiety and depression? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yep. yep. So we'll start with the first one. The first is that sadly, 
and I think this is something we're working on. We don't have any data right now about early mobilization and mental health outcomes. What I would touch on, though, is that I have yet to see any study in any medical population that doesn't find a positive association between exercise or activity, like physical activity and mental health outcomes. So we see this in COPD recovery, we see it in cancer survivors, we see this in cardio rehab. So I would be shocked if we didn't find some positive association between mental health outcomes and getting people up and moving in these settings. Bodies want to be in motion and, and for whatever that looks like for people. So I, I do think that there's probably an association, but I want to be humble and say we don't have a lot of concrete data about that yet. As for the delirium piece, gosh, delirium is so interesting. So what I would say is that we know that delirium has negative impacts on things like cognition. So the longer you're delirious, the more likely you are to have a lasting cognitive impairment. So there's that big study from 2013 by this group at Vanderbilt, and the lead author is this guy named Pratik Paripandi, and I hope I pronounced his name right, but uh, they found that up to a third of ICU survivors who had experienced delirium had cognitive impairments that were similar to a moderate traumatic brain injury at a year after being in hospital. So that's not insignificant. So to the degree that we think that perhaps having a new cognitive impairment might affect things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, I do think that resolving delirium earlier should be a high priority. We want to keep people's cognitive skills intact as possible to promote a full recovery. I think that we don't have a great handle on how delirium maps onto things like anxiety, depression, and PTSD so far in you know, the meta-analytic studies where you take like a bunch of studies and smoosh them together to see the outcomes. Delirium surprisingly doesn't predict those consistently. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One is we don't do a great job of measuring delirium. That is, we know if it's there or not when we do things like the CAM ICU, but we don't know what type is there. So we don't have a sensitive enough measure to say, did you have hallucinations and delusions that were scary? My guess is if you ask patients about that, they're more likely to have these depression, anxiety, PTSD outcomes, but our measures aren't sensitive enough to capture that yet. It is the case that I talk to patients who are survivors and they say, you know, I lost a big window of time and that doesn't feel good. Or surprisingly, I have talked to patients who tell me, you know, I was delirious, but I had the loveliest conversation with my dead mother. And so it's not, it wasn't that upsetting to me or it wasn't that scary to me. So I think that really what I'm getting at is if we had more sensitive measures about what people experienced while they were delirious, we might be able to tease apart these mental health outcomes from delirium. Because right now we don't have something that draws a line from delirium to PTSD, anxiety, depression. 
delirium is not great for the brain. We do have enough data to suggest that. Just to go back and tread over ground again, obviously the mobilization in ICU, there might not be significant uh, information in terms of its impact mental health wise, but obviously it's shown to greatly reduce the ICU acquired weakness because obviously a lot of that's gathered by sedentary, whether it be while you're sedated. So I was sedated for two and a half weeks, lost 40 plus pounds or something in that vicinity. That'll make you weak. Yes. But being weak physically will also have an impact on your mental health because if you're so weak that you can't lift your arms that will make you feel it will make you feel sorry for yourself which will then progress negative thinking to cause further issues so even if we can't equivocally say early mobilization in icu has a positive impact on mental health we can say it has a positive impact in physical health and that positive impact in physical health most likely reduces some aspects of mental health issues and progression. So although we can't, we can't say there's this study that says that this makes this better, we can say... Common you know sense makes, might suggest it, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I think there probably has been, yeah. maybe not in ICU-related studies, that... that physical ability will will impact your mental health because not being able to do things i think logically if nothing else will have an impact on your on your mental health I've lost the train of thought again because no, I, totally I, I, I keep i keep i keep hitting up a, a point and i'm like i've got to hold that thought in my brain because if i don't hold it in my brain i'll forget it by the time we get to something else i uh, think i you... see it it is it I think what you're saying is, you know, the mind and the body are really not that separate, the, right? The head like, bones connected to the body bone, you might oh, say. Oh, I hope Dale's listening. I hope Dale's listening. That was you that know, was always something that stuck with me. Yeah. That that it it's so it's so simple, a phrase, and that quite often I think it would be misconstrued what what it means. Well, obviously your skull's connected to your body. There's this this appendage called the spine that connects you, but that's not obviously what it means. It means that, you know, if you don't have mental health sorted, that it will have physical, you know, physical health affects mental health and mental health affects physical health and that you can't, you can't look at one piece of the puzzle. It's like, it's like everything in, in terms of healthcare, you can't, so I have many problems. I have many autoimmune issues, and a lot of the early care, perhaps the, the issues that we had, was that the medical practice is very siloized. That the gastro team look at the bowel and the liver. That's it. They don't look beyond that because that's their area. The infectious disease doctor looks at the infections hematology look at the blood and that the sort of grand scope isn't isn't looked at but that you need to you need to expand that beyond even the sort of 
medical to the psychological and psychiatric aspects of it as well in that you can't have good physical health if you don't have good mental health and you can't have good mental health until you have some sort of stability in your physical health yeah so i, I keep dropping in dale's phrases and programs it's it was a big impact in my my transition to delirium as being my topic so when no one really kind of knew who i was uh, obviously he answered a lot of the stuff that i had and provided with my papers so i could understand because i always wanted i could talk about my experience i'm quite good at it but to be useful you need to understand what the people are thinking so when you're talking i don't i don't know what doctors think realistically i don't i don't I'm, I'm not a trained medic i don't know what their training tells them so to impact their way of thinking and try to bring a sort of bridge of understanding between the reality and the education you need to understand where the education is so dr needham provided me with a vast plethora of papers to um, kind of understand where the the medical thinking was when i was doing when I was starting out, obviously it's a lot easier now because I kind of understand it a bit better. So one of the things I wrote down early on when you, you started talking was, how do you become involved in a, in a patient's case? Are you there and you see every ICU patient or are you flagged into a case by, by one of the team, either nurses, doctors or whatever? So yeah, the, the way that I am involved sounds a little like what you were describing earlier. So I get consulted on individual patients, but I also attend two meetings. So we have a weekly research meeting where we talk about every single patient and how they're doing with their early rehab. And I go to our multidisciplinary meeting. Uh, again, that happens weekly and it's every member of the patient's team and we again run the list there. Um, the main things that I get flagged in for are patients who are having trouble engaging in their rehabilitation, and that might be because the, the physio or occupational therapist or speech language pathologist notices, hey, this person's really afraid when we go to stand, or hey, this person is very vigilant about their breathlessness. Or, you know, we've even had things like, hey, this patient had multiple falls over the last year. So when we tell them, hey, it's time to get up, it's not intuitive for them. So I get to go in and work with the patient on about engaging in rehab. Another thing that I often get to hear is patients who are experiencing exactly what you're mentioning, Mark. You know, you know, this person's here after they had a transplant and they in the beginning, maybe the transplant went pretty well, but they've had an infection or a setback and they're wondering, you know, they're demonstrating these symptoms of hospital demoralization or depression. Can we try to tease some of that out and help them work forward? Often, now it's really hard, right? It was not uncommon for me to get consulted if there were family members who were having a hard time understanding why we're doing rehab or difficulty understanding the medical care pieces. My care of families looks a little different now. Uh, most of it's by phone or Zoom. 
and that's because of COVID. And my, my belief is that the absence of family is a hospital harm. And I know that at our hospital, we're trying quickly to come up with policies that will both protect patients, families, and staff from infection, while also reducing the harm of not having visitors. So I, I guess I just wanted to make sure that I said that because it, it is it is really devastating for patients and for staff to have people separated from their loved ones right now. But usually in pre-COVID days, what I would do would be go in the room and sit with the patient and the family and hear about their concerns and figure out how we could sort of come to an understanding between the medical team's idea of recovery and what the patients and families were thinking about it. And in rare situations, I might get to work with patients and families when they might have come to the ICU expecting that they would that they would survive. And I do get to work with patients and families in instances when it's clear they won't survive hospitalization and they will die. And in those situations, we might tap on projects like legacy making projects. There's also a very cool website that just got launched out of UCLA called Three Wishes Project. That actually uh, started with a Canadian physician who was Dale's mentor. Um, I think her name's Deb Cook, but I hope I'm not screwing that up. So these are some things that we're doing to humanize dying in the context of ICU. So that's a little bit about what I get flagged for. But yeah, our ICU is pretty intent on doing things like getting people off sedation, awake, and moving as soon as we can. So end-of-life care, I, I would think that that would be a big a big aspect of, of psychological support in terms of familial care and that in the end it's them that are most going to be impacted by it because they're the people that are going to survive and obviously you you touched on covid you know covid has changed all aspects of the world not not just healthcare but it has had a massive impact and obviously having spoke with Miguel last time there's very different sort of ways things have been done in terms of of ICU uh, worldwide uh, I believe they still had visiting for a lot of things even though Spain was one of the big hit from the start because I think they thought although Miguel is a, a, a pediatric intensivist so I, I think that sort of parental support there is is an almost a must but i believe it did carry out onto their their adult icu ward as well and that i don't know if it's a cultural difference that they they felt that that wasn't something that was sort of so easily just sacrificed and i know in our hospitals uh, i've only experienced the sort of acute wards during covid times when i've been admitted a couple of times and certainly we had visitation in my latter one but not in my earlier one so you were just sort of I'm always isolated inside room just because of how my immune system is but the first visit I wasn't allowed anyone and then the second time it was one one person that was allowed to visit you they were allowed to visit you multiple times during the week but it had to be that one just that one person so if it was your father your mother couldn't come and visit you the next day. It was your your dad had to come and visit you. So I think we're all 
around the world handling it slightly differently and trying to not just mitigate the risks in terms of a COVID infection, but also manage the risks of the sort of isolation aspect of it. And I don't, I don't think that any of us will get it right. And that's, that's the cold hard fact is I don't think there is a right because whatever you do is going to affect the other thing. So you, if you go full, full, isolate everyone, everyone goes into the little box and we just treat people in boxes, then you're going to have massive after effects mental health wise. If you go the full opposite way, where visitors are allowed to come and go as as previous policy, then you're going to have massive effects on the infection rates and transmissions. So we're all going to work in that grey in the middle and we're all going to use different shades of grey, but which particular grey works best in our particular settings, we're, we're only going to know truly from retrospective looks at things. I know in in America, it'll be much more that Johns Hopkins will do something one way and then maybe the, the hospital's in Indiana will do it slightly differently or Vanderbilt will do it differently because there's not so we have an overarching structure we have the NHS when the NHS dictates XYZ is done it's not done at regional level it's done across the board there are some slight differences in that Scotland and England and Wales are separate entities in terms of their health service so we do things slightly differently but generally speaking, when an action's made in terms of things, it's done nationally, where obviously with your system, it's slightly different. And so that that might have, have uh, issues with COVID and that what some people might think are positive might turn out to be negative. But as I said, we're not, you know, you, you can't make these, these sort of decisions on what's right from inside the, the issue. Is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about before I do the, the wrap up? Um, no, I just think that this has been such a helpful talk, Mark. I just appreciate you inviting me. Anytime I get to talk to a survivor is a good day because you guys know what's best. You know, you, you guys are the ones who've been there so making sure that we have a loop where we, we think we know what we're doing, but, you know, checking back in with survivors and really trying to make sure we're on the right track is how we keep moving forward. So I'm just so grateful for all the work you're doing. And, and yeah, thank you. I don't think we know what's best necessarily. I think we know what's wrong. Yes. I think that okay, we, that's good. We, that's well we generally good. know what's not being done right more so than than the healthcare you know professionals yeah and and particularly when i found out starting with my delirium work is that the gaps in education when you have them so like delirium education wasn't very good in terms of like the nursing structure and the medical structure but no one inside of those structures kind of knew that until it was pointed out so that that's kind of where the patients are useful in that saying, well, this isn't the reality of the situation. We know you've been 
taught this and maybe that's correct from a sort of physiological or a psychological aspect but it's not right in terms of the experience of it and so it, it's it's like an mdt is needed for every aspect of kind of medical treatment the medics can't just make a decision there needs to be a team involved it's the same with medical education it, there needs to be the team involved and in that case the team needs to involve people who have experienced whatever area is you're you're looking at whether it be mental health whether it be delirium or or any other aspect the people that have experienced it need to be involved in that aspect so i just want to thank you for being on and coming along it's always nice to have non-medic people on the podcast i'm hoping to get more non-physicians involved in because the icu picture isn't just a medical picture obviously my first podcast was with kate who is an icu nurse so that was the first sort of of the, the aspects but the podcast is to kind of paint the icu life picture which isn't just a a medicine picture regardless of what physicians may may believe there are more pieces to the puzzle than just medis medicines and medications and treatments so I'll, I'll throw it back to you if you have anything you want to promote or talk about and this is your your opportunity okay so we do have the annual Johns Hopkins Critical Care Rehabilitation Conference coming up. It's the ninth annual and in a historic turn of events, this one's going to be virtual. So if you go to the Johns Hopkins website and in, our, in your search term, just search for the Critical Care Rehab Conference, the, the webpage will be there and you'll be able to check out our brochure. So you'll hear our pre-conference workshop, which is very timely. It's being led by Dr. Ann Parker and is all about ICU follow-up clinics. Got amazing experts, people like Jim Jackson, Joe Bienvenu, and uh, others who've been setting up ICU survivor clinics. And then the rest of the conference is more dedicated to what rehab looks like when you're in the intensive care unit. So I have a little talk there as well and you hear from Dale who we've already talked about as well as many of our multidisciplinary colleagues so something to check out yeah so the the thing I would say about it is obviously it's a virtual conference so where you might not have been able to make it over to Baltimore before obviously this is much more accessible and obviously Johns Hopkins is filled whether you're an adult intensivist or whether you're a pediatric intensivist is filled with some of the you know the sort of best experts in in the field and not just not just dr needham but uh, is one yeah. of our pediatric intensivists and, and there's there's guests like barbara can who's from uh, sleep icu if you're if you're on twitter uh, obviously a big advocate for improving sleep in terms of battling with delirium so if you're thinking of conferences which maybe in the ice in the the current climate you're maybe not this is definitely uh, one that i would certainly say would be worth looking at if not attending well yet again i will thank you for for coming and i will plug something now i know it's a, it's a very rare occurrence people i very rarely plug anything myself i usually let the guests plug them but there is a a book out 
now called Essentials of Delirium uh, by Dr. Shibley Raman. Uh, I wrote a small section of it on the patient experience. And uh, if you are in any way interested in delirium, which if you are a healthcare professional, you should be, because it's not an ICU thing. It's not an old person thing. It's uh, an everywhere in the hospital thing. It is uh, an exceptionally brilliant handbook on delirium and certainly is more than worth the cost of it in terms of what you will learn and what you will understand about the condition. So that's that's me. I plugged my one thing. I would like to, obviously, I would like to thank you uh, for being here. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And obviously, if in the future there's there's another topic that we can cover, I'm sure I'll I'll have you back on. Is there anything you're you're wanting to say before we go? No, it's my pleasure, Mark. I'm so glad that I got to spend some time with you today. Like I said, it really is a highlight. So please keep up the good work. I'm so glad that you're okay. here. 